Welcome to episode number 21 of Calm History. This is a spotlight episode featuring the history of the Klondike Gold Rush. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. All right, today's episode is about the Klondike Gold Rush that started in 1896. For clarity, this is not the California Gold Rush that started earlier in 1848 in the United States. This gold rush started about 50 years later in Canada. If you love the Gold Rush TV shows, then you probably already know that some of the mining in those shows takes place in the Klondike or nearby regions. Those TV shows are reflective of a modern-day Klondike gold rush. But today, we are going back in time to the first Klondike gold rush. And here are some questions I'll address. Is there a relationship between the Klondike gold rush and the Klondike ice cream bar? Yeah, I figure that's your biggest curiosity, so I've got the answer. What mining methods did they use? And especially, how did they thaw the frozen ground to get to the gold? What was the business side of mining? And what was the loophole exploited by married couples? What were the challenges of living in a mining town? And how bad were the food shortages and the diseases? And yes, I'll finish by telling you all about the wild lifestyle of gold miners, including gambling, dancing, and other curious gold-fueled entertainment. If you enjoyed this episode and want many more episodes, then just become a Silk Plus member and you can get free access for a limited time to every archive and bonus episode of Calm History, along with 500 other episodes. If interested, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay, time to step inside my time machine of tranquility. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The Klondike Gold Rush of 1896 This gold rush began in the Klondike region of Canada, so the origin of the name is pretty logical. But why is it also called the Yukon Gold Rush? This is because the Klondike region is inside a larger territory called the Yukon. So it goes by either name, but it is more commonly called 
the Klondike Gold Rush. If you want to visualize the location on a map, the Yukon is in the northwest corner of Canada, or the upper left. Inside the Yukon Territory, close to where Canada borders Alaska, was the heart of the Klondike region. This was Dawson City, located right where the Klondike River runs into the Yukon River. I'll be yapping a lot more about Dawson City, but first, let's tackle a really big question. Is there a relationship between the Klondike Gold Rush and the Klondike Ice Cream Bar? Yes. The Ice Cream Bar, which launched in 1922, is named after the Klondike River where the Klondike Gold Rush occurred. The company simply named it the Klondike Ice Cream Bar because it was ice cold, like the Klondike region and probably because the word Klondike evokes images of gold, which is a coveted and cold treasure. You may even remember the Ice Cream Company's 1982 ad campaign that centered around the question, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Okay, enough about ice cream and old-timey commercials. Let's get back to the main topic. The Klondike Gold Rush began in 1896, continued for about three years, and attracted over 100,000 prospectors. The first gold was discovered there by local miners on August 16, 1896 attracting a wave of prospectors from Seattle and San Francisco in the U.S. Some of them became wealthy, but the majority didn't. To reach the gold fields from the U.S., most took ships to ports in southeast Alaska. Here, they could either follow the Chilkoot Trail or the White Pass Trail to get to the Yukon River and then sail down to the Klondike region. Canada, though, did something very smart, probably because they knew of the problems that had occurred during the earlier California Gold Rush. The Canadian authorities required each prospector to bring a year's supply of food in order to prevent starvation. Yeah, that's a lot of supplies. In all, their equipment weighed close to a ton, which for most had to be carried in stages by themselves. Traveling with heavy supplies and through mountainous terrain with cold climate meant that most didn't arrive until the summer of 1898. Once there, they found few opportunities, and many did leave disappointed. The big, easy-to-grab nuggets had already been found, so what remained was a lot of hard work. 
mining was challenging because the gold was distributed in an uneven manner and the digging was made slow by permafrost. There was another way to make money, though. Some miners chose to buy and sell claims, building up huge investments and letting others do the work. To accommodate all of these hopeful prospectors, several boom towns sprang up along the routes. One of the largest was Dawson City. In just two years, Dawson City grew from a population of 500 residents in 1896 to over 30,000 residents in 1898. Wooden buildings were put up in haste, and sanitation was not a priority. As a result, Dawson City was often plagued by fires and health epidemics. Another problem was that getting supplies to Dawson City was difficult, so everything was sold at very high prices. This wasn't a problem for those prospectors with big pockets of gold. They spent their piles of money with extravagance, mostly by gambling and drinking in the saloons. Unlucky prospectors were not the only victims of the gold rush. The local Han natives suffered greatly. These native people were moved onto a reserve to make way for the stampeders, and many died in the process. To add insult to injury, contaminated water from Dawson City brought typhoid and other health problems to the new Han Reserve. By 1899, the gold rush finally began to die down. Okay, that was the big picture overview of the Klondike gold rush. And when we get to the end of this episode, I'll explain what caused the gold rush to end. But first, Let's tackle some of the important details about the Klondike Gold Rush. For example, how exactly did they mine for gold in the Klondike? Mining usually began with clearing the ground of vegetation and debris. Prospecting holes were then dug to see if there were some small bits of gold, or even better, a big pay streak. If these holes looked productive, then proper digging could commence. The prospectors would dig down until they hit a hard layer called bedrock. This is where most gold would settle because the heavy gold couldn't penetrate deeper than the bedrock. The gold-rich dirt on the bedrock was called pay dirt. Hence the expression, to hit pay dirt. Another problem was that the gold and pay dirt wouldn't be evenly distributed on the bedrock. Instead, it was usually concentrated in long channels or streaks. This is why the digging 
had to be carefully monitored in case the direction of the digging needed to be changed. This was called chasing the paystreak. Now, this digging for the pay dirt was not as easy as it may sound. Winter in the Klondike causes a layer of hard permafrost that is about six feet, or 1.8 meters, below the surface. Initially, this meant that mining in the region only occurred during the summer months. But as time went on, the pressure and fever of the gold rush made such a delay unacceptable. To deal with the frozen earth, the miners used wood fires to soften the ground to a depth of about one foot. Once it was thawed, they just removed the dirt and repeated the process until they got down to the pay dirt. If the frozen ground was inside a mine shaft, then the miners had to use bellows to remove the noxious smoke. The heat from the fires also caused some mine shafts to collapse. This is because the permafrost at the top of their mine shafts had been helping to support the tunnel. The problems didn't end once they extracted the thawed pay dirt. Those piles of thawed pay dirt then tended to freeze, so they would have to wait until summer to isolate the gold. Luckily, a better method, called steam thong, was devised around 1897. This improved method used a furnace to pump steam directly into the ground, making everything easier and quicker. But only a few miners back then had the resources and equipment to use this new method. So how did most miners isolate the gold from the pay dirt? You can probably visualize the process known as panning, where miners kneel next to a creek and swirl dirt and water in a pan. This method was good for seeing if any gold was present, technically called prospecting. It was also good for isolating gold from pay dirt that had very heavy concentrations of gold in it. But in most cases, they had tons of pay dirt with dilute amounts of gold in it. To concentrate the gold from most of their dirt, they used the process called sluicing. And it was called sluicing because they used sluice boxes, sometimes up to about 20 sluice boxes. And these boxes were also referred to as just sluices. These wooden sluice boxes were about 15 feet or 4.6 meters long. The miners would run water through these boxes along with their pay dirt. The gold in the pay dirt would get trapped in riffles or mats that were in these sluice boxes. This process required lots of water, which was usually produced by creating a wooden dam with ditches.
or by using crude pipes. Finally, the isolated gold particles would be exchanged for paper money at a bank in Dawson City. Of course, gold was also used as currency for lots of local purchases and payments. Okay, let's now peek into the business side of being a Klondike miner. Under Canadian law, miners had to first get a license before arriving to Dawson City or get one once they arrived. They could then prospect for gold. But remember, prospecting only means looking and testing for gold. When they did find good ground with gold in it, they then had to stake a claim to get the rights to mine the gold. Why was it called staking a claim? Well, a prospector would drive wooden stakes into the ground a measured distance apart. If the claim was along a creek, then the traditional length was about 500 feet or 150 meters, and it included the adjacent land. Once the stakes were put in the ground, the miner had to return to Dawson City to register it. This registration had to be done within three days of staking the claim and cost $15 back then, which today would be about $410. Once approved, was there a time limit to mining on these claims? Yes. To keep mining the claim after one year, the miner had to pay an annual fee of about $100 back then, which today would be about $2,800. In addition, the miner had to pay the Canadian government the value of 10 to 20% of all the gold extracted from the claim. On top of that, starting in 1897, each miner was only allowed to stake one claim at a time in a district. But some men doubled their claims by using the marriage loophole. This loophole allowed the wife of a miner to also register a claim in her name. Here's another kick in the pants. Should the miner leave their claim for more than three days without good reason, another miner could come along and make a claim on the land. Now, for some good news. Claims could be bought and sold, and miners could buy as many as they wanted. One miner, named Alex McDonald, purchased 28 claims. Of course, the price of a claim depended on how well the seller could prove that there was gold in the claim. An unproven claim may sell for $5,000 back then, but a proven claim may sell for more than $50,000 back then, which today would be about $40 million.
as an example of a well-proven claim. Claim number eight on the El Dorado Creek, sold for $350,000 back then, which today would be about $280 million. But why sell your claim at all? As long as you find some gold, then you should be rolling in the money. Well, one major problem that developed was the cost of wood. That statement may shock you a little. Why was wood so expensive? Well, wooden lumber were quickly being used to create the buildings in the boom towns. Miners also needed wood to build sluice boxes, to construct wooden dams, to build wood line ditches, to support mine shafts, and to build small huts next to their mine sites. And do you remember the other important use for wood by these miners? Yeah, they had to burn it almost non-stop to thaw the ground during the winter. As a result of this high demand and use of wood, most of the timber in the Klondike was cut down. This made lumber very expensive during the gold rush. Listen to these amounts. The cost to build all their wooden sluice boxes for one miner about $600, cost to construct a wooden dam for one miner, about $1,000, the cost to build the wood line ditches to get the water from the dam to the sluice boxes, about $1,500, and the cost of the wood for thawing the frozen ground, about another $1,500. The total for one miner working one claim would be about $4,600 back then just for the price of wood, which today would be about $3.7 million. But some still made lots of money. As an example, Claim number 29 may have spent $4,600 on the cost of wood to start mining, but then they extracted about $230,000 worth of gold over two years. That equals almost $2 billion today. Yeah, that's the exception. Most miners struggled. Many chose to sell their claims, sell their equipment, and return home. Others took jobs as manual workers, either in mines or in Dawson City. Which brings us to another curious question. What was life like in Dawson City and the other boom towns? These new towns were crowded often chaotic, and many disappeared just as soon as they came. Most stampeders were men, but 
Women also traveled to the region, typically as the wife of a prospector. Some women entertained in gambling and dance halls that were built by successful miners. Of all of these boom towns, Dawson City was the largest, and surprisingly, the laws were mostly abided by. The city was protected by the Canadian Mounted Police, who did allow gambling and prostitution, so that kind of made their job easier. Instead, they focused their efforts on limiting robbery and murder, although there were other critical problems. The remoteness and fast growth of Dawson City proved to be an ongoing problem for the supply of food. When the rivers iced over in 1897, it became clear that there would not be enough food for that winter. The mounted police evacuated some prospectors who didn't have enough supplies to Fort Yukon in Alaska, while other prospectors made their way out of the Klondike in search of food and shelter for the winter. During that winter, salt became worth its weight in gold, while nails, vital for construction work, rose in price to $28 per pound, which today would be about $760 per pound. Yeah, just for nails. Cans of butter even sold for $5 each back then, which today would be like buying a can of butter for $140. The only eight horses in Dawson were slaughtered for dog food because they couldn't be kept alive over the winter. The first fresh goods arriving in the spring of 1898 sold for record prices. Eggs sold for $3 each back then, which is equivalent to buying one egg today for $81. And apples sold for a dollar each. Yeah, imagine spending $27 today for one apple. Due to these conditions, a lack of vitamin C caused an outbreak of scurvy in Dawson City, which weakened, crippled, or killed many prospectors. Dysentery and malaria were also common in Dawson City, and an epidemic of typhoid broke out in July of 1898. The typhoid ran rampant throughout the summer and affected thousands of residents. Further outbreaks were prevented the following year by improving the outflow of dirty sewage and improving the inflow of clean water. Despite these challenges, the huge amounts of gold coming through Dawson City encouraged a lavish lifestyle among the richer prospectors. Saloons were typically open 24 hours a day, with whiskey being the standard drink. Gambling was popular, with the major saloons each running their own mini-casinos 
that involved dice, poker, and other games of chance. Some establishments had grand facades in a Parisian style, as well as mirrors and plate glass windows. Late in 1898, some were even adding electric lights to dazzle the miners. The dance halls in Dawson were particularly prestigious and even major status symbols. The construction and decoration of the pavilion dance hall cost its owner the equivalent of $80 million in today's costs. Wealthy prospectors were expected to buy a bottle of champagne for $60, which would be about $1,600 in today's cash. Elaborate opera houses were also built, bringing singers and specialty acts to Dawson. Tales abounded of prospectors spending huge amounts on entertainment in one single evening. As an example, there's one guy named Jimmy McMahon who supposedly once spent $28,000. That would be the equivalent of you spending $760,000 in a single night. Most payments at all these places were usually made in gold dust. There was even so much gold dust spilled during these wild times that a profit could be made just by sweeping the floor. One of the richest miners in Dawson City was Bill Gates. No, not Microsoft Bill Gates, but Swiftwater Bill Gates, who often dressed in silk and diamonds. He also had a reputation for being a gambler and a ladies' man. To impress one woman who liked eggs, which were then an expensive luxury, he supposedly bought all the eggs in Dawson, boiled them, and then fed them to dogs. I don't know if that woman was actually impressed, but I bet those dogs were pretty pleased. Alright, let's move on from hearing about rich male miners doing dumb things to hearing more about the women in the Klondike. In 1898, women made up 8% of those living in the entire Klondike region. In towns like Dawson City, this rose even higher to 12%. Once in the Klondike, very few women, less than 1%, actually worked as miners. Many women arrived with their husbands, but some traveled alone. In regard to mothers turned prospectors, Few brought their children with them due to the risks of the travel and the remote location. Most came to the Klondike for similar economic and social reasons as male prospectors. Although, there were also some young, single women who traveled to the region with the hopes of marrying a rich miner. But rich miners were very rare 
and perhaps suspicious. So most ended up getting married to not-so-rich miners. Their lives as partners on the gold fields were hard and often lonely. They had extensive domestic duties, including thawing ice and snow for water, breaking up frozen food, chopping wood, and collecting wild foods. In Dawson City and other towns, some women took in laundry to make money. This was a physically demanding job, but could be relatively easy combined with child care duties. Others took jobs in the service industry, for example as waitresses or seamstresses, which could pay well, but were often punctuated by periods of unemployment. Both men and women opened taverns and inns, but women were considered to be better at running them. A few women worked in the packing trade, carrying goods on their backs, or became domestic servants. Some of the wealthier women invested in mines and other businesses. It was only a relatively small number of women who worked in the entertainment industries. The elite of these women were the highly paid actresses, and beneath these elite women were the chorus line dancers, hostesses, other dance hall workers, and some prostitutes. These women were better paid than the white-collar male workers, although they did work very long hours and had significant expenses. Now, for the final question, what ended the Klondike Gold Rush? The rush began to falter in the summer of 1898. This is when many of the late prospectors arriving in Dawson City found themselves unable to make a living, so they turned around and went home. For those who stayed, work wages were very low because there were so many men looking for jobs. Dawson City also became more strict and conservative in 1898, losing its appeal as a wild place to live. The world's newspapers also began shifting their headlines in 1898 from the Klondike Gold Rush to the Spanish-American War. A popular phrase at that time to express disgust with an idea wasn't go take a hike, but rather it was, ah, go to the Klondike. Klondike branded goods even stopped selling well in the U.S. The final trigger, however, was the discovery of gold elsewhere in Canada and Alaska, prompting a new stampede, this time out of the Klondike. In August 1898, gold had been found at the head of the Yukon River, generating a flurry of interest. In December of 1898, even greater discoveries of gold were attracting more miners to Nome, Alaska. In a single week, during August of 1899, 
at least 8,000 miners left Dawson City and went to Nome, Alaska. By the end of 1899, it was basically official. The Klondike Gold Rush was over. Since then, the Klondike has been mined on and off with improved machinery, allowing for more gold to be found. Today, the legacy of the gold rush draws tourists to the Klondike region and contributes to its prosperity. But many do believe that another modern-day gold rush has happened in the Klondike, as well as other parts of the Yukon and Alaska. If you want to see it, just watch any of those Gold Rush TV shows. When you do, you will see history repeating itself as some miners fail and go broke, while some succeed and get rich. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this spotlight episode of Calm History. If you'd like to become a Silk Plus member and get free access for a limited time to all the archive and bonus episodes of Calm History and 500 other episodes, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Thank you for listening to my podcast.